Welcome, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today our guest is Stefan Kerr. And Stefan is the founder and the CEO of Tech Taylor. In just a moment, he's going to be with us from Santa Rosa, California and tell us all about what he is doing there. Just a reminder, you can find us on all the social media channels where we post our upcoming shows. And also you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. In just a moment, we shall be back with Stefan. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thanks so much for listening. Today, our guest is Stefan Kerr, and he is the founder and CEO of Tech Taylor. Hello, Stefan, and welcome. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for doing uh, a show and being our guest. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Tech Taylor and um, what you're doing there? Well, thank you for, for having me and giving us the chance to share our story. Tech Taylor was founded in 2015, and, and our mission really is to divert used materials from the landfill and upcycle them into unique and meaningful new products. So trying to give a new life to stuff that other people throw away. Yes, and this is kind of a, a recurring topic and theme is that, um, you know, the importance of, as consumers and producers of things, that we become more circular in our processes in materials. And why is this important to you personally and to all of us, really? Well, it's, I mean, if you look at the amount of stuff we buy and especially the amount of stuff we throw away, you see there's definitely a need to rethink waste and, and to rethink the way we with used materials. In the United States alone, we produce about 300 million tons of solid waste every year. And that, that's, a, that's a number from 2018. I would assume that with the pandemic and all the single-use stuff, that number probably went up quite dramatically. And especially in the United States, we produce about 12% of the worldwide waste, but we only make up 4% of the population. So there's a big disconnect. And we definitely live the most wasteful lifestyle on the planet in, in North America. So the whole, um, the, the end point here is at some point we exhaust our resources and basically kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, so to speak, as we would say in Montana. Can you tell our listeners a little more about your personal journey and, and what led you to found and create Tech Taylor? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been an interesting path. And um, I was born and raised in Germany, uh, left Germany in, in 2000 after you know, studying business in, in Cologne, Germany. I started working for Deutsche Telekom and, and T-Mobile you know, working basically in, in marketing for mobile internet, mobile data services. So nothing to do with manufacturing. Through T-Mobile, I moved to London in 2000, from London to Vienna and Austria. At some point, I took a year off, went backpacking around Central and, and South America, ended up back in London with T-Mobile and, and a couple of other uh, 
you know, smaller startups before moving to the United States in 2007. Um, also at that time working for a consultancy that was, you know, part of Deutsche Telekom. So back in, in the mobile data industry and mobile telecoms. And I only got into the manufacturing through my wife, who I met in San Francisco when I moved here in 2007. Her parents had a manufacturing business up here in Santa Rosa, which I joined in 2010. And after my in-laws retired, I turned, you know, what was their original company into a new business, Tech Taylor, incorporated it as a legal benefit corporation, turned it into a certified green business, and, and just in general, trying to see how we can make the sewing and textile industry a little bit greener than what most businesses do. Yeah, and as you know, we've had other benefit corporation folks on and green businesses, but can you kind of refresh and review exactly what that means in order to be a benefit corporation? What does that entail and what does it mean? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two different things. There's, there's, there's a legal way of incorporating your business as a benefit corporation, which basically means that you give social aspect, you know, at least the same, if not a higher priority than just the traditional goal of a C-Corp to make money to keep your uh, shareholders happy. If you, you know, if you consider your business a, a benefit corporation, you, you, you want to use your business as a force for good. And also, you know, besides your shareholders, consider all stakeholders in the business from the environment, your local community, your employees, you know, your suppliers, your uh, business partners and customers. So it's, it's a more, more of a holistic approach to, to doing business than just optimizing your business to make as much revenue for your shareholders as possible without regard to anything else that's going on around you. So I'm curious, having this international perspective, having lived in other places, uh, how does the United States compare to, say, Germany in trying to be more green, generally speaking, and manufacturing in particular? Well, I have to say, I was quite surprised when I moved here and, and saw how backwards things here were still with when it came to recycling and composting and all those things. I mean, for me growing up in Germany in the, in the you know, I was born in 74, so late 70s, early 80s, we, we already had like all the recycling worked out, you know, buying bottles at your local grocery store, taking them back there for refunds of your deposits. Uh, it, it, everything seems like a little further along when it when it came to um, managing waste and, and recycling, et cetera, than you know what I've been witnessing here. You know what, what's what's great about the North Bay and and California where I live is that I think we're we're pretty far ahead here when it comes to consciousness about sustainability and you know recycling and and upcycling and diverting waste. So. I think I'm in the right spot here, combined with all the technology that comes out of California. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy. I, I realize sometimes it's a bit of a bubble we live in here, but it's. I think we can we can drive a lot of change out of of the mindset we have here. Yeah, and I'm curious how this may affected you as a as a child. I mean, honestly speaking, growing up uh, here in Montana, and it, and it's still a challenge because we have. A very sparse population, so recycling is just not, um, you know, there are no economics to support recycling those sorts of efforts. But as much as we would love 
for that to happen. But growing up there in Germany, what were your earliest recollections of sustainability or being maybe taught that in schools or your family? Well, I mean, for once, growing up, you know, with my grandparents around quite a bit, I mean, they were still, you know, part of the war generation and my parents growing up in a post-war Germany. Just the fact that people, you know, whenever we would visit my grandparents, you look at their kitchen appliances and, and all the stuff they had in their household. A lot of a lot of those items were still from, you know, the 60s or some even from the 50s kitchen stuff. And, and that stuff was built to last. So it was always, you know, I always felt like it was a little bit like going to a museum, visiting my grandma's kitchen, but everything was working fine. And she made the most amazing dishes with all that stuff. So, you know, all these products were built to last. And that's something we're definitely missing today. Um, the other thing is, you know, as, as long as I can remember, we as kids were already, you know, bundling newspapers and cardboard and, and set it out. I, I think every uh, once once every month, Saturday morning, you would set that stuff outside and volunteers would come and collect all the paper. Uh, outside our local volunteer fire station, we had three different glass containers, one for white glass, for brown glass, for green glass, and people would just you know, bring their wine bottles and beer bottles uh, to the recycling containers. So they set the stores, you know, you buy crates of, of glass bottles with water, beer, whatever it is, lemonade, and you would bring them back and you get a deposit. So there was very little we threw away. And, you know, every household had a big composting bin uh, for yard waste and, and, and that kind of stuff already back in, in the 80s. So... In your opinion, I'm a, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but for us <laughs> Americans who seem to be uh, behind, and I, I would agree with this, by the way, I mean, it's um, if you have a, an opinion that's different, I would love to, to hear that. So contact us and, and we'll do a show. But why are we, <laughs> is it a lack of will? Um, is it a lack of education? What, what can help us become more sustainable as a society in the United States? Well, that's a good question. I think it, it takes various different approaches. I mean, first of all, consumer education is something we've been working on, I think, for, for many years, maybe in, in some states more than in others. So far in the past, I think some of the focus has been on recycling only, not not much on on, on the other more important topics like, you know, reducing the amount of stuff we buy, reducing packaging, um, reusing stuff, repurposing things, repairing stuff. So I think that needs to be a focus moving forward, especially since with China and other countries not taking much of our material that was um, designated to be recycled. Um, suddenly there's not much of a market anymore for many items that we used to collect for recycling, and now they end up in the landfill as well. So just focusing on some recycling, I think, is not the long-term answer. And, well, plus it's it's... It's also the big companies and corporations have to rethink, you know, take any of the big coffee chains. I mean, they can make a conscious switch to you know, how they serve their coffee and, and, you know, what kind of materials they use. And so they can drive consumer change, too. But, you know, somebody has to be the first to say, hey, OK, maybe it's going to cost us a few pennies more to use you know, greener, more sustainable materials. But hey, we have a competitive advantage doing that. Uh, but we also have a responsibility towards our society and environment to do that. So I think there's 
And then the consumers have to want it. They have to, you know, think more consciously about what they do and what they use and, you know, how they treat materials. So let's talk about your transition to manufacturing. How did you prepare for that? I would imagine that your in-laws were instrumental in helping you, but can you share how, because this happens often, you know, when we are speaking with entrepreneurs and CEOs and founders, they have this huge, varied background, just like yours. And how did you make that transition and and what was uh, instrumental in that? Yeah, I mean, the, definitely the manufacturing world was new to me. I mean, I was always always liked building things and making stuff. So that I always had an interest, you know, uh, for, for that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, my background was all around marketing, mobile internet, mobile uh, telecom, so very virtual stuff, you know, not much real product to grasp. And so it was fun to get into a, an environment where you create product, you make things, you cut fabrics, you cut materials and got some talent to soil out there and, and you know, you you turn stuff into into cool and unique products. So that that to me was fun and it was, you know, something much more tangible than than just all the virtual, you know, apps and tech and mobile internet and that kind of stuff. So it was a it was a welcome change to dive into this this new world. But yeah, it took some learning too. Uh, especially since our pretty much our entire workforce is uh, Hispanic, mostly Mexican. So, you know, I learned Spanish at university, which came in very handy because I, you know, I wouldn't know how to run this show with, without any Spanish. Definitely makes it much easier that way. But so there's a lot of new things to learn from, you know, the process of making things to uh, all, all the vocabulary used and all the lingo in sewing and manufacturing between, you know, I, I didn't know most of these machinery parts or equipment parts in German, let alone in English or Spanish. So there's definitely some, some challenges getting to know what I'm, you know, what I'm working with. So we're at that midway point break here. And uh, in just a moment, we will be back with Stephen Kerr. This is Heartstock. We're back with Heartstock Radio, and I'm Carol Murphy, your host. Today, our guest is Stefan. Kerr, and he's the founder and the CEO of Tech Taylor. Hi again, Stefan. Hey. So I'm really interested in hearing more about the products and the changes that you implemented and how you kind of transitioned, because this is always a challenge too for many companies, you know, when you're starting up brand new and you know from the beginning what it is that you want to do in the products and the supply chain and all that, how did you figure all that out to become more sustainable and more green? Well, originally the business that my in-laws founded was focused on manufacturing protective gear. They made knee pads, elbow pads, wrist guards for skateboarding, for, for the military, law enforcement, construction, work safety gear. And, you know, when I joined the company, I saw that there was always a lot of, you know, scrap fabrics, little overstock fabrics, um, end of roll yardage, 
a lot of stuff that was still good material was already paid for and you know so i started collecting a lot of that scrap fabric and, and extra stuff and we also did some contract sewing for different companies and so we saw um, that there was a lot of extra material. So after collecting that stuff and then also knowing some companies in Europe that had upcycled and repurposed different materials, I started combining these leftover materials with stuff like banners and billboards and started reaching out to some local companies here. We have a you know, big raceway here in, in, in Sonoma County, uh, Sonoma Raceway. So I talked to Steve Page. He was at the time the, the CEO at the raceway and he said, yeah, Banners and billboards are one of our big headaches. They accumulate tons of them. They sit in the warehouse. When the warehouse is full, they take them to the landfill. So they didn't really have anything to do with that stuff. So we started taking those in and turning turning those uh, banners into, you know, raceway merchandise, like duffel bags, tote bags, messenger bags, uh, dop kits, little toiletry bags, and so on. And so out of that approach... Um, we figured, okay, we could probably start a whole business around that since, you know, there's so much cool material out there and this material really has a lot of life left. It's not, you know, a vinyl banner takes somewhere, you know, three, four hundred years to decompose. So it's made to hang out in the sun. It's water repellent. It's UV resistant. Uh, why not let it live on as a duffel bag that's going to last you pretty much a lifetime? I noticed as I was doing a little research that you are using fire hose material. It's it's a, yeah it's a, it's a cool material and unfortunately we have way too much of it here with with all the big fires we had over the last few years in, in Northern California. So we we sit currently sit on approximately seven thousand pounds of decommissioned fire hose from the 2019 Kincaid fire and last year's glass fire that we had here. So that's all fire hose that either gets, you know, charred or punctured or damaged somehow and uh, would usually end up in the landfill. But we partnered with uh, Cal Fire and Recology to collect all that stuff and, and keep it out of the landfill, you know, clean it up, uh, cut it up and turn it into new products. We make belts from it, coasters, uh, keychains, little zipper pouches, all sorts of cool products. And it, again, it's a material that's super durable. It's easy to clean. It's it's going to last a lifetime. And it it you know has a has a sentimental value here too. This is all stuff we we call it basically gifts with a heroic past. You know, it's something that has made an impact here. And the firefighters worked so hard to protect our you know cities, our houses. So to let this material live on, and at the same time, we, we set it up in a way that we give a, a give back 10% of all our firehouse product sales back to a local nonprofit that was founded by Cal Fire employees to support um, local firefighters who have, you know, either lost their homes or have medical bills to cover. So it's it's kind of going full circle. It's It's a little memory for people who, you know, have lived through this, but it also gives back to our local heroes who helped us fight those fires. Gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that material? I mean, I would imagine it's super, super tough. What is fire hose made out of? Um, that's a good question. It's, it's. I mean, there's a lot of different different types of fire hose. Most of them made are made of a combination of of fibers, mostly polyester or nylon fibers. Uh, they have some rubber lining. And yeah, it's it's a pretty rough material, and it's not mostly it's it's not in the nicest condition when we get it. It's pretty dusty, dirty. Uh, some parts are definitely burned and charred, 
Um, so it, it takes it takes some work to to deal with it. We usually soak it for you know a couple of days in water with some orange-based liquid just to get the, the dirt out of it. We power wash it, cut it down, and and you know then start the sewing process. And again, it's it's a pretty tough material, so we have to design products around the widths and the thickness of the materials, so stuff that we can actually you know there's limitations to what you can make from it due to the makeup of the materials. Indeed. And I'm wondering, I would imagine these brilliant ideas are coming to you all the time. What what lays ahead? What, what kind of exciting things do you have planned for the future? Well, our goal is really to to try and work with more larger corporations. We have some good local partnerships here with with companies who who've decided to basically move away from buying all sorts of cheap import merchandise that you know people get tired of like another plastic tumbler or another cheap t-shirt with your company logo on it and you know trying to move away from that stuff and and basically sourcing more sustainably made more meaningful corporate gifts and that's really one of the key areas we want to focus on to help businesses you know maybe take the signage and the banners or whatever other materials they have that they already paid a lot of money for that tells a marketing story to turn that stuff into more meaningful gifts for their employees, for their customers, their business partners, stuff that, you know, lives on and, and tells their marketing and brand story, but at the same time has an impact on a positive impact on the environment environment and their sustainability story. Do you have investors? This is always, you know, especially for startups, you know, how do you fund all this? Are you completely internally funded or do you have investors? Yeah, funding is always a challenge, especially for for kind of niche markets like ours. We started the business with a Kickstarter campaign back in 2016. We launched that and, you know, at the time we managed to raise like a little over 30,000 bucks in 30 days. We had over 264 backers from, I think, 11 or 12 different countries. So that was kind of our proof of concept. Other than that, we've, it, it's been mainly so far self-funded and through some you know, generous loans from friends who you know believed in what we do. It's it's hard to get to raise much money for what the kind of business we do. I mean, there's not much grant money out there, unfortunately. Um, most of that money goes into recycling. There's not much money set aside for upcycling and repurposing yet. Uh, hopefully, that's going to change in the future. Um, also, when you look at in- traditional investors, you know we're not a typical case for uh, angel money or venture capital money because you know this, what we're looking for is slow growth or green money. Hopefully, for somebody who understands that, you know, this is not like a tech company where you're going to have a, I don't know, 5X or more return in in two years. This is something we have to build and grow an industry that, you know, takes some time to to establish. And advice for others in this space, you know, like you said, it's, it's it's not a get rich quick. It's a broader, longer perspective. Um, Any advice for other makers or upcyclers out there? I think it's it's building a network and, you know, engaging with your local community. You know, we've had a lot of success working with partners like uh, our Sonoma County Go Local Cooperative. That's, that's an organization strongly pushing 
buying local, making local, supporting the local economy first before you, you know, maybe buy stuff from the big chains or import it from abroad. It's like, what can I, what can I do locally? What can I source locally? And I think that that's a, that's a good, good advice for, for any small business getting started. But at the same time is, you know, pick the right people. And we're, we're still, you know, trying to get the right team together. Um, you know, I have a strong sewing and, and production team. We're a little, we're a little weaker at the moment still on, on, you know, marketing and producing content, telling all those stories about the cool stuff we do here. So, you know, trying to get the right team together early on and yeah, build, build your strategy for growth and, and investment. It's like, that's, you know, we've been very focused on, on production and making products and we're strong at that, you know, where our weakness is, is just, you know, telling the story. So we need to, we need to bring more folks on board who can help us with the social media and the marketing of what we do. And you touched on this a little bit. We could do a, a whole show on it, I'm sure. As far as trained workers, you know, because that's a big issue here in Montana and across the U.S. is that all of our, our makers are really skilled sewers, don't exist anymore. It's because it's all been exported overseas. So tell us a little bit about how you're managing that workforce. And, you know, some people are going to be angry <laughs> and want to close the borders and build a wall. You know, the fact that your Spanish-speaking population is who's making all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... It's the- since there is no young new generation of teamstresses or sewers coming along, you know, it's not, it's not, and that's true for many other crafts as well. It's just not something that we're training kids these days to do. And I think it's something that we need to bring back to schools and education more, the option of, you know, going into a craft, not everybody has to go to college or, you know, it's like there's a, there's a big, and there's a growing movement of making things locally and, and, you know, refocusing our energy on, on, on making stuff here and the art of crafting something, you know, there's the maker movement. Um, we've been partnering with schools locally starting at elementary level to teach kids about, you know, building a sustainable business, teaching them about upcycling, bringing them into the factory, showing them all the different things that that are part of a manufacturing business and all the different jobs that, that are available in, in manufacturing. And I think so that's, that's important to just educate the young generation um, and, and kind of maybe change the value set of, you know, what it means to make things here. And we've seen it during the pandemic, how important it suddenly can become to have a functioning uh, domestic manufacturing uh, network in place to, you know, when suddenly your your foreign suppliers cannot supply anymore or, you know, there's more demand for products that you want to, want to source locally. Yes, I definitely think the reshoring movement is even more alive. Uh, we've got about a half a minute left. How can folks find you, Stefan? You can visit our website at www.techtailor.com. Yeah, you can send us an email at info at And if you happen to be around Santa Rosa, we have a little retail store right here at our factory where you can actually see what we do and find a lot of cool products. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Heartstock. I just uh, loved our conversation and your perspective. Really appreciate it, Stefan. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you having us. 
This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. We shall be back next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing, but on the other side.